Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see each and every one of you this morning. I'm so thankful for you. Happy Mother's Day. Very thankful for mothers this morning. So thankful for my own mother. I'm going to see her a little later today. If you have the opportunity to see your mom today, do it. Call her at least. Do something uh, if you have that opportunity. But uh, I'm so thankful for my own mother. I'm thankful for my my parents. Um, I don't know what your upbringing was like. Maybe you had a mixed bag. But uh, for me, the Lord blessed uh, me greatly with uh, a very sweet and caring mother. So I honor her today. And uh, more than that, though, I honor the Lord who gives us greatly. Uh, Certainly, He gives us life. He gives us uh, children of our own. And this morning, this is, I'm just going to admit, maybe the most unusual Mother's Day sermon you've ever heard. I, I didn't really feel the need to go so far off the beaten path. We're in Judges today for Mother's Day. And uh, in one of the most famous stories of the Bible, we're in the story of Samson today, which may have fit better on Father's Day, but you know what? The Lord's in charge, and uh, he, he helped us lay out our, our year, our calendar for the year. So I have no doubt that today, as we talk about a very unusual wedding, a very unusual couple of events, uh, that it's not only going to glorify God, but it's going to edify and encourage us. You're here today to hear from God, and I pray that that happens. I have no doubt he'll show up in whatever way he deems fit in your life. We've called this sermon the wedding crasher. The wedding crasher, which is funny. Uh, it has nothing to do, I'll just admit, it has nothing to do with the 2004 or 2005 silly comedy wedding crashers, which I did see, judge me if you want, whatever, it's a long time ago. I watched it, it's pretty funny. But our final and 12th judge, Samson, he, he has nothing to do with, with that movie, but however, he's trying to marry a woman that <laughs> is not best for him, and the wedding crasher, I'm going to go ahead and give you a hint, is the Lord. The Lord crashes the wedding. He crashes the party. The little party that Israel's having in their sin, God's crashing it. He shows up. The idea of this sermon is the fact that God is unfortunately the uninvited guest in Israel's destiny, and he's showing up anyway. Last week, as we saw in Judges 13, there was this miraculous birth. There was this amazing event. We hear so much about who Samson's going to be, but he's like one of those kids that has so much promise, but he never really agreed to this himself. The Nazarite vow, everything that God put on his life, incredible potential, but he wants what he wants, and it has nothing to do with what God wants. And he's emblematic of the nation. Unfortunately, he's, he's symbolic of us. Of, of us as people, even us as Christians. In our heart of hearts, we want what God wants. But the way that we think, the way that we behave, often indicates so much like Samson that we, just, we, we like what we see and we take it. We want what we want and we go after it. Rather than thinking and pausing and saying, okay, God, is this best for me? Samson, like all of us, like Israel, wants the blessings of God, but also wants what the world has to offer. And these things rarely work together. Rarely. He was a compromised man. A man called to love God. A man called to save Israel. But instead, he loved the world. 
The Philistines here, you might feel like they get a bad rap, but they're representative of the world in this story. They're representative of the culture at hand. And what's different about this passage in Judges from everyone we've been on, if you've missed the last several, you can go check them out online. But what's different here is every other time it says they were oppressed by the Midianites, by the Ammonites, by these former peoples, and for a certain amount of time, and they eventually repent and cry out, and God saves. Here... We don't see the word oppression. We also do not see Israel crying out. Why? Because it would seem that they're okay with the Philistines ruling over them. Maybe, in fact, they kind of like what they see. The Philistines, if you go back historically and look at this, these are the kind of people that were a little bit more advanced in their warfare, maybe more advanced in their architecture. They've certainly got a, a culture that's enticing. They apparently have, as we're going to read in this story, some good-looking women. This okay. You know what? I'm okay with these Philistines. God, you know, don't worry about it. We're good. And they've fully given themselves over to the culture at hand. Now, at this point, they've been ruled by the Philistines for 40 years and without complaint. But God has other plans. God is the life crasher. You know, sometimes... Believe it or not, we're praying for one thing and God's the one that crashed the party because he's trying to shake something up to give you a new adventure, to get you on the course that he always intended and you you chose something else so he shows up and crashes the party. That's what he's doing here. The Lord is only mentioned five times in these two chapters. However, he is at work behind the scenes, waking up Israel. And I pray he wakes us up today. Now, what does this have to do with me? Well, I think this is obvious. The, the struggles that we have today are so, so similar that, that we would give in to a compromising kind of faith, a compromised faith. Unbelievers, they should see us as different, but do they? Do we look different from the rest of the world? Or is our life indistinguishable from everything else around it? Here's a, a couple of journals I read this week. I want to give these to you real quick. Just something to chew on as we adventure in here with Samson. There are generally four reasons why Christians compromise. Four reasons. The fear of rejection. That is the fear of being alone or being pointed out. Fear of rejection. False tolerance. That means you're unwilling to express any disagreement with the beliefs or practices of that around you. You may feel like that doesn't seem right, but you'd rather tolerate it. Number three is pleasure. This one's obvious. You're willing to sacrifice holiness for personal happiness. And then the fourth is apathy. You're simply too lazy to seek what God has to do for you. You're just more interested in, well, my way, my way is easy, my way is convenient. So apathy. These are the four reasons that this one article wrote. And then it goes on to talk about the four stages of compromise, which are scary to me as I look at them, because I recognize how this has affected me in my own life at times. The first stage is attraction. Something gets your attention, you desire it. Okay, that happens a lot. It's not that abnormal. Number two then, though, is justification. You begin to make reasons why this is okay. It's okay that I'm over drinking. It's okay that I'm looking at stuff late at night that I shouldn't be. It's okay that I'm gossiping. There's a reason why I need to do this. You start to justify those things you desire. Then you just go into number three, indulgence. All restraints are pulled now my conscience becomes hardened then. This is, this is who I am. This is, I'm going to indulge this. And then number four, you redefine. You redefine what is wrong. Eventually you have to look at the Bible and go, well, 
this thing's outdated. You know, maybe it didn't mean this here and this there. And so you redefine and remove guilt. This is not uncommon. Certainly not uncommon for our culture, but even a battle, certainly a battle for us as believers. This is where Samson is today. This is where the nation of Israel is. The Philistines represent the most deadly enemy of all. Hear this, church. The most deadly enemy is not persecution. It's compromise. A persecuted faith can be a strong faith. can be a faith actually stronger than an untested faith. They've been persecuted so that they would come back to Christ. To come back to God in this story. But here, the compromised faith is way more dangerous. That says, you know what? I'm okay with this. I'm good with this. God's working behind the scenes. Rescuing Israel. We can recognize what God is doing for us. And these are, these are going to be some interesting happy Mother's Day. These are going to be some wonderful points today. For all of us. Three ways in which God leads us to have an uncompromised faith. If y'all leave here mad at me, I just, I'm okay with it. Let the, let the Spirit of the Lord deal with you. I, he's been dealing with me with these this week. I'm going to go ahead and read this story to you. This is Judges 14 and 15. This is a fascinating story, so I think you'll enjoy the read. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says that Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and he told his father and mother, Hey, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now go down for me. Now go get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among your own people uh, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That's going to sound very similar to something we're going to hear again and again as we finish Judges. That Israel does what is right in their eyes. I just, I'm attracted to this, so go get it. Also, Samson sounds a little bit like a spoiled boy at the moment. Uh, maybe he is. This, these, his parents, remember, could not have children. They've named him little Sonny Boy. I think he's getting a lot of what he wants. Hey, Dad, go get her for me. She looks right in my eyes, but she's not one of us. I don't care. Verse 4 is the key to the whole text. His father and mother, though, did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, God here, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Okay, weird. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. The Lord is seeking an opportunity. He's at work. Verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards at Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. That's not normal. Not for us. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, I find that a strange comparison. I've never tore a young goat. I would have said like tearing a piece of paper. Maybe it was common to tear young goats in that day. I don't know. This is strange. But needless to say, with his bare hands, he manhandles this lion. No problems. But he did tell his father and mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and for she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. So he scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. 
And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them. And they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. That seems weird, abstract. This is part of God's plan to crash the party. It's also a test, if you will, because guess what? The Nazarite vow, you're not supposed to touch dead stuff. Samson is already showing he doesn't seem to care a whole lot about his vow. He's touching a dead carcass. And it's weird for bees to be making honey inside of a lion. If you think that's normal, I mean, God is obviously up to something here. There should be decomposing things happening, not life. So he comes back with honey, all happy and cheery about what he's done. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. That means Samson didn't bring his own buddies. The Philistines provided buddies. That's odd. That's the wedding party here. Uh, many commentators think these companions are not really buddies at all. They're bodyguards. <laughs> They're guards to make sure Samson doesn't do anything wild. Because maybe he's already getting a reputation of killing lions out in the field and weird stuff. This dude is a problem. Verse 12. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. I'm going to give each one of y'all a nice wardrobe. But if you can't tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. That's cool. You can see why this riddle is impossible to figure out. How would they have figured this out? You get it. In three days, they could not solve the riddle. So verse 15, On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. They love burning people down in their homes with fire. This is a thing that happens a lot in Judges. It's strange to me. Have you invited us here? To Samson's feast to impoverish us? Verse 16. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not even told my father and mother. And I shall tell you. So she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. Men. That's tough. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard, she made the last few days of his wedding miserable. And crying, you won't tell me. So she told the people. She told the riddle to her own people. Verse 18, And the men of the city came to him on the seventh day before the sun went down and said, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? So Samson said to them, This is a great pickup line. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. That's just as bad in the Hebrew as it is in the English. Just so you know, that was not a good thing. In so many ways, he's saying, not only you, you've been tampering with my, with my wife, but you don't plow fields with heifers. He's saying, you, you inappropriately used my wife. This is, this is interesting. And his wife got called a cow. I, I wouldn't recommend that. Just don't. That's... Not on Mother's Day, but not on any day, if you want to live. Um, 
Verse 19. Because you have to sleep eventually. I'm just saying. All right. Verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife, listen to this, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Whoa. Let's finish chapter 15. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife, With a young goat. He's cooled off a little bit. I know I called her a heifer. But I killed a bunch of guys. I'm feeling better about that. I've got a young goat. I'm I'm bringing a gift. He says, I will go to my wife in in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Y'all, the Bible is is real. This is crazy. Verse 3, Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes, wow, and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. There's so much to think about with that story. I've never caught a fox. I would think it's pretty hard. I've never tried. I've never seen 300 foxes, period. This is an amazing feat. One that Samson apparently knew he could do. I think he's grown up just catching stuff, running around. He's not only apparently strong, he's fast. And he burns all this wheat. Look what happens. The Philistines then came and said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Interesting irony. And Samson said to them, Is this what you do? I swear, I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And so he struck them hip to thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines, they came up, and they encamped in Judah, and they made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he, is, as he did to us. So then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Do you hear the people of Judah here? Judah who, who has been the strongest, the best of the worst, if you will, of Israel. They're saying... You're making problems for us. We're good with the Philistines. They're ruling over us. There's no issue. They brought 3,000 men. I'm just saying, Samson's been scaring people for a while. Why'd they bring so many people? There's rumors going around that this dude can catch 300 foxes. He's got skills. What then is this that you've done to us? So he said to them, as they did to me, I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you. That we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Wow, this is sad. We're going to turn over our own people. That's how much we'd rather just protect the status quo. 
And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes. The Bible's careful to tell us that, and brought him from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and those new ropes that were on his arms, they became like flax. That has caught fire. His bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And put out his hand and took it. And with it struck 1,000 men. This story never ceases to baffle me. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey. Heaps and heaps with the jawbone of a donkey. I have struck down 1,000 men. The dude's a poet. He likes riddles. He likes songs. As soon as he was finished speaking, he threw down the jawbone of the donkey out of his hands. And at that place, that place was then called Ramothly High. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted me this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi. And water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakore. It is at Lehi to this very day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. If nothing else, when you leave today, you can say, you have read a wonderful story. But it's so much more than that. It still rings true. And here's why. Samson's got an, a compromised faith. But there are three ways here that God is leading him, the people of Israel, and us to an uncompromised faith. Here's the first, and you're going to hate it, but take it anyway. He allows our sinful desires to take us down, to lead us to desire Him. That's a, that's a hard point. I get that. That's a hard thing, and yet that is exactly what He's doing. I thought of a lot of different titles for this particular sermon. Samson's uh, Honeymoon with No Honey. Uh, Samson's uh, The God's Monkey Wrench. Uh, this one was really good. I didn't make this one up. I saw this somewhere. The Lion, the Wench, and the Wardrobes. I thought that was pretty good. But I chose The Wedding Crasher because that's what God is doing in this whole story. Samson's not the monkey wrench. God actually is. Throwing problems in so that the people of God would stop going down, 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 but eventually look up. They're having a problem remembering their God. They've forgotten who they are. And Samson's the same way. The the narrator here of this story is carefully placing this phrase in. It's in this story five times. The words, Samson went down. It seems the whole story is him going, going away from the Nazarite vow, away from the miraculous birth, away from this wonderful projection that the angel gave to his parents. He's going down Down, down, down. And we don't even get to the end. We're going to have to address that next week. Eventually, he'll have to lose his eyes to open his eyes to God. Because in this story, he's just hungry for his appetites. He cannot see God. All he sees is what he wants. And now on down in Timnah. You can pop up this map. It's a little hard to see, but we're, we're, we're heading away from Judah towards the Mediterranean Sea. This place called Timnah is in between Judah and the Philistine nation. Um, you can find maps like this uh, if you're curious about the geography. But 
He's coming here now, marrying an uncircumcised woman. He, he has made the, an uncircumcised people, not woman. Uh, you, yeah, follow in. But, but this is what's going on. He's marrying a people that are far from God. These people worship many pagan gods. They have no interest in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the, the true God. They have no interest in that. And his parents are worried about that. He's not. He's happy to marry himself to the world. He's happy to do it. She looks good to me. I, I don't know how else to phrase that. She looks right in my eyes. Okay, I think she's really pretty. Obviously, she's a pain in the butt to be around. I don't, he's not spent enough time with her to figure that part out. She's cried for three days. They come on the fourth day, and for the rest of the feast, she weeps and nags. Men, do you love your wives when they weep and nag? Is that your favorite thing? Um, I, I love it. I love it. That's, I love my wife that much. I love even her nagging. That's not true, but I'm going to leave it there. The Bible has a lot to say about this. The reason it has so much to say about this idea of intermarrying is not because God has some problem with races, has some problem with us uh, marrying outside of our race. It's not that at all. It's about faith, not race. He says these people are leading you away from the God of the Bible. They're leading you away from Yahweh. You can marry whatever color you want as long as they follow Jesus. That's the story of the Bible. This is what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Fellowship has, what fellowship has light with darkness? This is the, the problem of the Old and New Testament. He is setting a people apart who would be faithful to him. And I got news for you. If you're single today... One of the things that can absolutely be a train wreck in your life is to marry a non-believer. I'm just, it just is. It's true. It's what the Bible teaches. And the reason for that is faith is, is, is so instrumental in your life. And that person will either bring you closer in alignment or farther away. You want to follow Jesus? You want to follow him closely? Listen and obey. This one instruction is very good. Many of them... All of them are, are, are carefully put for us, for our good, not for our harm. He says, she's right in my eyes. And then verse 4, the key to the whole passage, it says that God was looking for an opportunity with the Philistines. Now, I get it. You may not like this God, but this is the God that we serve. This, is, this God has not changed. I want you to understand one of the characters, characteristics of God is immutability. That means he has never changed. He's the same God. The difference being now we have Jesus who has changed our covenantal relationship with him. That's true. However, the justice of God remains alongside the love of God. I want you to see something here. God loves his people so much that he starts throwing wrenches in. Don't see that merely as his justice, merely as his wrath. It's twofold. He loves us enough. It's like you as a parent. If you judge God as harsh here, think about yourself as a good parent. Do you every once in a while let your kid trip? Let them fall? You've told them three times, four times, a hundred times. And now they just want to do that stupid thing again. Okay, do it. Look, you fell on your face. How'd that feel? Well, that's not good parenting. Yes, it is. Because if you don't let it happen, the world will do it. And they won't be prepared for it. 
God does a very similar thing with us. Okay, I've told you in my word. I've told you in prayer. I've told you again and again, and you just won't stop trying to trip and fall on your face. Fine, fall on your face. Here I am. I'm still here. That's the good parenting part. Okay, get back up. Let's go fix your your busted knee because you decided that yet again you wanted to stand on the arm of my couch. Do people stand on the arms of the couch? Do you ever see mommy and daddy standing on the arms of the couch? I'm glad you fell. Maybe you won't do it again. Am I better than God as a parent? Absolutely not. He's a perfect parent. What is he doing? He's making, he's looking for an opportunity to set his people free. Because they're oppressed and they don't even care. Look, the world around you, my friends, is deeply in love with sin and they don't even care. They're happy about it. And Christians, we sometimes are deeply devoted to sin and we don't seem to care. But God loves us too much for that. He just does. He just does. He's looking for an opportunity to set you free. Now, in the person of Jesus, he's already done it. In, in, the, in, the, in the global sense, in the big sense, he's already rescued you. But in the moment by moment, he's doing it again and again. Every moment. I'll teach you this lesson one more time. He's looking for an opportunity. What does that mean? That word there, you can't miss it. The word there is ta'ana, which means an opportunity for a quarrel. God is looking to pick a fight. That's what the Hebrew means. It reminded me, I love the movie Braveheart. It reminded me of this one moment where, where William Wallace says, they, they said, where are you going? Where are you running off to? And he's, he's about to race out to the middle of the battlefield. And he says, I'm going to go pick a fight. And I was like, that's God here. He's picking a fight with the world. Did you understand this is what God has been doing for generations? He's picking a fight with the sinful world. That's what the cross is. It's a battle that he's already won against the sin of this world. So God's gone to pick a fight. And then the spirit rushes on him. Do you think this lion came out of nowhere? Oh, God's surprised this lion showed up. No, he's not. Is God surprised that the carcass has bees in it? This is not normal. This shouldn't be happening. And then there's this riddle. Now, this is all on Samson, but God made him this way. So this is kind of interesting to me that inside this, this boy that's supposed to be great is this, this, this riddler that wants to, I, I want to do a bet. I'm at my own wedding. Let's, let's make a bet. And to be fair, this riddle he gives is, is impossible. It's evil. So then how does he fix it? He goes down to Ashkelon. He goes quite a distance, just so you know. That's about 23 miles away. He goes almost a marathon away to go kill 30 dudes. I guess that was so maybe nobody would hear. And just so you know, I just want to give you all the details because I love you so much. He says, I want to give you 30 linen garments and 30 outer pairs of clothes. That's your overgarments and your undergarments. So he kills 30 men and just strips them completely nude, I guess. I don't know how he did it without getting blood all over the clothes. Maybe he went and robbed their house. I don't know. Or maybe he, I've always envisioned it this way. He just shows up with bloody clothes and says, I promised you clothes. Enjoy it. 30 bloody clothes. Down to the underwear. Wow. God in his mercy uses Samson's sinful desires. To bring not only Samson back, and it takes longer than you might hope for Samson. 
But honestly, sometimes it takes a lot longer in our lives than we really would want. If we could see sin for what it is, see our desires as far from God, and we look back at our story and we see some of those things along the way and go, wow, God, I'm sorry that took so long for me to see something better, for me to see that you loved me enough to let me fall, to let me go down so that I might look up. This is what he's done for Samson. It's what he's doing in the people of Israel. James chapter 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God allows us to go down after our sinful desires to bring us to the point of desiring Him alone. Psalm 73, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I think He loves us enough to continue to bring us to that place. To go, money's not going to be enough. Relationship's not going to be enough. The, the success that I thought I would have is not going to be enough. Like, eventually, God is working on us that we might say, there's nothing on this earth I desire more than you. You are my first. One commentator, I love what he said on this. He says, there's no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. Understand this, people. Understand this, church. When you're really following Christ, when you're really walking in the Spirit of God, you are not going to make everybody happy. You're, you're, a lot of people are going to be offended by you. And it's not that you try to live offensive. You live loving. You live as Christ to them. But your, your, your mere devotion to, to Jesus will be offensive. Your mere belief in this and, and following this with your life and with your family's life, people will look at it and go, you are archaic. You're a mess. You're a bigot. You're a, and you'll have all these wonderful labels put on you. But understand this. We cannot coexist with a sinful world because we serve a Savior who has conquered sin. So we live with love but also truth. In His mercy, God uses our desires to show us the emptiness in achieving them. So that might, we might just love him and see that he, is, he and he alone is enough. Here's the second way. If you love that first way, here's the second way for you. He removes our sinful devotions that we might be totally devoted to him. Now this hurts. This hurts. I'll be honest. This, this thing that Jesus does, he's described it this way. He describes it as our relationship to God being like a vine that needs pruning. You can go to the book of John to see this, 14, 15. In those chapters, you'll see him speaking of this idea. And that what's going on there is that we have these little buds, we have these little things that are stealing from our devotion, and he prunes those. I don't think the pruning part always feels so good. I know it doesn't. I know it hurts Samson here. Look what happens to Samson. He, he is wronged by his wife. She betrays him. She betrays his trust. She nags him for days. And then she, then she goes to his people. She has no confidence in him. She's still... Why didn't she come to him and say, Hey, Samson, they've threatened me and my father. I don't know what you can do about that, but if she'd have known Samson, she'd have known he could knock some heads together. He could have fixed that. She doesn't do that. She betrays his trust. And then her father betrays his trust and just gives her away. I guess her father thought, we've already done the wedding feast. We've already done all these shenanigans. We need to give her to somebody. What a weird thing. 
That's what he does. Samson shows up. You know, I already gave her away. But don't you think her younger sister is prettier? Dude, the, some of these fathers of the Bible make me just want to cringe. Like just, oh, what's wrong with you people? But different times. This is what he does. What is God doing? What is God doing behind the scenes? Did you notice that God did not allow Samson to marry this woman? He prevented it. He crashed the wedding. He creates enmity between him and these people. I don't think Samson thought it felt very good. He was betrayed. You know, God's doing this constantly. Removing our sinful devotions that we might actually be devoted to him. Paul said, in fact, that singleness... And y'all, not everybody in this room is going to like what I'm about to tell you. There's a few of you in here that are single right now. Paul said singleness is an advantage for the goal of undivided attention to the Lord. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying that to be married is wrong? Absolutely not. You should go read more on this. But what he is saying is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Understand this, any relationship that you enter into, any job that you choose, if you're not following after the Lord, if you're just kind of seeing things and going after them, they steal your attention. They steal your devotion. And before long, you start to go, why is it I never go to church? Why is it I'm never in the fellowship of believers? It's because of the people you've put around you, the choices you've made, and you've made the decision that God is not first. And then he begins to do something because he loves you, Starts to throw monkey wrenches and all these things. I dated this girl coming right out of high school, y'all. Right before I started college. And I was kind of a knucklehead. She was like the first serious relationship I had. And I thought, boy, she could be the one at 18, right? I'm like, I'm really figuring this thing out. And uh, she just, she was someone who showed me a lot of attention. And, and, and someone that I, I was, looked good in my eyes, you know, but the, the, so much of that was, was, was difficult for me. And what I found out was, even I think the Lord allowed that whole thing to happen. I don't think it was God's best for me. But again, like Romans says, all things work for the good of those who love and trust Him. He even got me through that, uh, that bad decision to be with someone like that. And it's interesting to me. I came into college. I'm letting you all know a lot of random stuff about me. I hope you enjoy it. Um, whatever. But I came into college thinking, well, I guess I'm just going to be single. I took what Paul said and was like, I guess, I guess I'm going to do that. Because clearly when I decided to have a divided attention, I screwed that up real bad, God. So I'm going into college and just devoted to you. And then my very first summer, I went on a mission trip, a summer project to Myrtle Beach with Campus Crusade for Christ. We're down there doing beach evangelism, figuring, learning how to share the gospel in the workplace. And I met this little girl there named Nicole. And I was not giving her the time of day. You can just ask her. It was not. Now, she had some other interests quicker than me. Um, I didn't see it for several weeks. Um, but anyway, God, God's funny like this. When I finally, it seemed to me what he did for me, and he doesn't do it this way every time. So don't hear my story as, oh, this is how God always works. This isn't how God always works. But with me, when I finally said, God, I'm tired of dividing my attention everywhere. I'm tired of making a mess and full of myself. I'm not going to pursue girls unless you just make it like ridiculously clear. He made it ridiculously clear. But he doesn't always do that. But with me, that's what he did. And the reason I think he did that 
It's because he just wanted again to teach me how to be devoted to him. He's still doing that in my life. I want to share more on that in just a second. But even good things, even blessings, even these things like this, they can become idolatry when we become more devoted to them than we do to God. Did you understand that you can make idols of your spouse? You can make idols of your kids. You can make idols of your career. You can make all of these things that are good things of God become idols when they take priority over him. And they steal your attention. And guess what else happens? And you might not believe it, but it's absolutely true. When you begin to say, I care more about my husband, my wife, my kids than I do about God, you become a really poor parent and a really poor spouse. It's the nature of it. Because God has designed you for himself and has now organized your life under him. And when you serve him, it's like he... he, he, makes you ready and makes you capable of doing the tasks he's called you to. But when you put other things in idolatry over him, it doesn't work that way. Here's the third. The third and probably my favorite way of the day. This one I had some fun with. He loosens the bonds of our sinful world that we might be free to serve him. He loosens those bonds. He's doing this already, my friend. I don't know if you've come in here today and you're completely devoted to something that's destroying your life. If you've fallen prey to some sort of bonds of this world that you can't see any way of getting loose of. This is why the story is careful to tell you they put new ropes on him. New ropes. Shouldn't have been able to break those. This is why the story is careful to tell us that Judah has fallen for the sinful world. And they're betraying their very brother, putting new ropes on him. But what is God doing? He's not just doing the miracle of Samson here. He's revealing something to Judah who must have been looking on. They bring Samson. We've got him. We've got him in in bonds. We've got him in chains. Here you go. All right, now leave us alone. And then as Samson's approaching him, ta-da! Can't put strings on me. And grabs, I always like to picture this like he's Wolverine because I'm a big fan of Wolverine from the comics. But anyway, that he grabs both sides of the jawbone to go like, that's how I like to picture it. You do what you will with your brain. I do hope one day, sidebar, I hope one day in heaven we can be like, hey God, can you somehow project what happened then? I've always wanted to picture it. Can you put that on the big screen for us somehow, God? I love that. I don't know if he'll do that for me comes with this jawbone of the donkey, slays a bunch of people, gets incredibly thirsty. Why is is this story in here? Certainly to show the power of the Spirit of God. That's true. Certainly to show Samson yet again, your strength comes from the Lord, but he's not seen it this way. But the observers, the Judites, I think it was for them as much as anything. They might say, you know what? God can unbind some things. He's doing this. We're going to see this over the ending of Judges into 1 Samuel and the later stories, which we won't get into together until later. But this is amazing what God is doing here. Teaching them, I can, new ropes don't hold me back. There's, 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 nothing, there's no sin that can, can get you to a point where I can't recover you. There's, there's nothing you can do in your life that would make you so bad that I couldn't love you through it. 
That's the wonder of this story, that there's, there's, there's no addiction, there's, there's no problem, there's no, no wrong you've done, there's nothing you've committed that God can't destroy the bonds of. And that's what he's telling the people of Judah, that's what he's showing through Samson. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus promises this again and again. In John chapter 8, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Will set you free from the bonds, whatever they were, whatever you came to Christ with. I'm addicted to this. I have this sin area. I've been doing it most of my life, Jonathan. I don't care. When you know the truth, you will be set free. I know this is true because that man, on, uh, th- that man next to Jesus on the cross is the greatest proof to me that he didn't do anything to fix any of his wrongs and yet all he had to do was say, I believe, Lord. And Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise. He didn't have some extensive life of repentance or un- undoing all his many wrongs to humanity. God can undo the sinful bonds of this world. And he's done it in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the only true Savior. John chapter 16, it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, my friends. John goes on in 1 John to say, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. You will know the truth. It will set you free. You will walk with Christ and he has overcome the world. By your faith in Christ Jesus, you too have overcome the world. The sinful bonds he has broken. I want to finish with this thought. Jesus has clearly said, no one can serve two masters. This has been really obvious to me, I think, for quite some time. I pray it's becoming more obvious to you all the time. I've always felt he dealt with me personally very swiftly. I don't know how he deals with you. I would even make the argument that maybe what's different about being a Christian than being an Israelite is that by the power of of Christ, because of the nature of the Holy Spirit, we hear quickly when we're wrong. It seems to me that the Israelites, it took them a little while to go, wait a minute, we're screwing up. Sometimes a whole generation, it seems like. With me, it's the moment after. And I go... I'm sorry, Lord, what was I thinking when I said that, when I did that? It's swift when he comes to me. Sometimes, most of the time, painfully obvious. Here are just a few of those lessons that I'd love to share with you about how God has loosened the bonds of the world on me. And I think he's doing this with everyone. But your list may have more. And maybe you've been walking a little longer than me and you can say, hey, wait till you get to this. He'll loosen that too eventually. The thing I think he loosened most in my younger days was you can't serve worldly popularity in Jesus. You can't. They don't coexist. Some of the things about following Christ are unpopular, and they always will be. You also, he taught me this, you have no idea what makes for a great spouse, but God does. You have no idea. It's not beauty. (laughs) Although that'd be great. I think he does that still. He loves you so much. But the The thing that's going on inside, I can honestly say this, and maybe uh, you might argue I'm just trying to put money in the bank, but I couldn't have picked a better person to do ministry with. 
Because there have been times I want to quit. There have been times I didn't have the perseverance and she did. And there have been times I would much rather just stay home rather than go to community groups <laughs> because I'm an introvert and I don't really want to be with people. Surprise. And she's like, we should probably go. We should do what is right. What if I'd have married an unfaithful person? Unfaithful to God. I'm not talking unfaithful to me, unfaithful to God. What if I'd have married that? I wouldn't be right here right now. I would not. We'd probably still be together. I'd have just, just boorishly gotten through that. But you have no idea what makes for a great spouse, but God does. Number three, you cannot serve your idea of success and Jesus. You can't. They don't coexist at all. I thought, I'll plant a church. We'll be a mega church in Rocky Mount somehow. And not that God couldn't still do that, but you know what? He doesn't care as much about that. He really does not care to make my name great. He cares about his name. And I hope I'm getting better all the time at making his name great. And maybe he'll bless us with growth. But I'm confident that the thing that I need to do better than anything else is help you grow. That maybe at the end of the day, maybe when I go home to see Christ, he'll say, what did you do with the people? How did you shepherd them? I'll say, to the best of my ability, Lord, I tried to give them the word of God. I tried to model it well. I tried to teach them your word. That's what I hope I'll be able to say. And that the people look more like Jesus every day. I hope that's true. That's what I want more than anything. You can't serve your idea of success. And the most recent lesson, y'all, that he's working on me is so fun. You can't serve any sort of financial comfort and Jesus at the same time. I'm confident this is why he made my wife a real estate agent. So that way when the market does this, he can go, <laughs> you were never in charge. You never were. So then over the last few years, I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. And then I start saying things like, you know what? I'm pretty good with my budget. You know, I've done some good stuff. Look at all the debt we paid. Look at this. He's, re, he's reteaching me a lesson that I, I forgot somehow where I need to say, by the grace of God, I am. By the grace of God, I have food on the, play, on the table. Ooh, I don't know why I forgot that lesson. Lord, I'm trying. This time, I'm not going to forget. You don't have to take me in a low valley unless you just see something else that needs work. By the grace of God, I have what I have and am what I am. More lessons to come. He's teaching you some wonderful things. Why? So that he might loosen the bonds of the sinful world on your life. So that you might look more like Christ and serve him fully. Samson, with God's help, overcame his bonds. But we can overcome ours. Our bonds, you fill in the blank. Whatever that thing is that's got you stuck, God has already overcome it through the person of Jesus. He's already done it. Desire him above all others. Be totally devoted to him and be set free to serve Jesus as Lord. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a loving God. A God who loves us enough to sometimes give what appears to be tough love. You did it certainly with Samson. You did it certainly with the people of God throughout the Old and New Testament. I have reason to believe then, Lord, that you are doing this in me. You are doing this in your church. That sometimes you let us chase our affections, chase these desires that are not good for us. But you don't just prevent it. You allow it for a season. So that maybe we would look up. God, I'm looking up today. I'm praying for your people right now. I don't know how they've come in here today. I don't know where they're stuck 
what, what bondage to sin they have today, what, what bad lifestyle they've been living for a long time, these areas where they think, I just don't know, I don't know if anything can fix this. I'm broken. And people say that a lot lately. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just broke and I, I don't think anything can fix it. I've tried meds. I've tried, I've tried working out. I've tried all kinds of stuff to try to fix my addictions, my depression, my, my wrong thinking. The, the, whatever, you fill in the blank, my friend. Do you know God loves you? He loves you more than you know. Lord, we're so thankful for you. That your love may appear tough at times, but in the end, it is full of grace and mercy. That you put your love on display in a way we could never, we could never overlook. That God, you took on the cross for us. Jesus, that you suffered a painful death so that we would not have to spend eternity apart from you. God, thank you for who you are. And we ask now, Lord, we ask of you. Help us to desire you above all else. Help us to put aside these things that have so easily entangled us and made us a mess. We can pinpoint them. Maybe right now, my my friend, whatever that thing is, lift it up to God. This is the thing that I've been serving. This This is the thing that I'm attracted to that's turning me away from God. I, 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 just, I, I hand that to you now, Lord. And I believe that you can loosen bonds. I want to see it in my life. Can you do it now? Friend, if you showed up today and you're hearing this word, maybe you've, maybe you've heard the gospel before. Maybe you've, you've heard about this, this Jesus who saves, this Jesus who died for you on the cross. But I pray today it's working in you in a new way. And that maybe today you want to put your faith there finally. God's knocking, beckoning you to come in and be a part of the family and walk with you. If that's you today, pray with me a simple prayer. It says in the book of Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the power of the gospel in your life, that Christ has taken your sin upon himself. If that's you today, pray with me these words. Jesus, I believe you are Lord of my life. What that means to me is that you're in charge. You're the one who leads me truly. I believe that you are my Savior. That you took on the cross for my sin. The things I've done wrong, my guilt, my shame, my brokenness, all of it now I lay at your feet at the cross. And Jesus, today I believe that you paid for that for me. And God, I believe you raised Jesus from the grave as well. That that resurrection gives me hope. Not only that you conquered sin on that day, but also that you have given eternal life and you meant it when you said it. I'm thankful for those things, Lord. And I'm praying now, now that you have rescued me, I've put my faith in you. Would you do in me as you promised in 1 John, that, our, that my faith would overcome the world. My faith in you, Jesus, would overcome my sin. Remove those bonds, remove those things that have got me trapped and walk with me. Guide me. Dear friend, welcome to the family of God. I'm, I'm blessed that you prayed that today. And there, there are angels rejoicing in heaven for you. And we're praying right along with you that God would also remove those, those bonds on us. Even we as Christians sometimes 
we fall prey to sin and get trapped there. I pray you would remove those things, those chains that we let bind us. God, begin to remove them today. As we leave this place today, don't let up. Let us be thinking about that as we leave over lunch, as we lay our heads on our pillows tonight, that we would be thinking, God, remove that bondage. Begin it today. We love you, Lord Jesus. We're confident that not only do you love us enough to save us, you love us enough to free us. Thank you so much for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.